Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Loris Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We'll explore the intersection of art and technology with a visit from Emil Moffat, our colleague in news. He also hosts WABE's TechCast. Later this hour, City Lights senior producer Kim Trobe sits down with Emil Moffat to discuss the NFT, or non-fungible token, a digital certificate of authenticity. First, does my body offend you is a new young adult novel about two girls who start a movement to protest the dress code at their high school after one of them is humiliated by school administrators. The story is told in alternating chapters by Myra Cuervas and Marie Marquardt. The Atlanta-based authors join us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. We're thrilled to be here. Please tell us how you two decided to write about the issues tackled in this book. So, Lois, just to, to give the audience and listeners a, a little bit of background about what the book is about, you know, it's a story about two very different high school girls who come together after this weird bathroom encounter having to do with their breasts. And one of the girls was asked to cover her breasts, her nipples with panty liners. And they come together to start a dress code revolution at their school. My character, Malena, is a hurricane evacuee who has just moved to Florida from Puerto Rico. And she came to school without a bra because she had a sunburn in her back. And then the school nurse makes her go to the bathroom and paste panty liners over her nipples. Then Marie's character, Ruby, is this fierce female feminist activist who is also new at the school and she sees this happen and it freaks out and then she convinces my character Malena to start a full-on revolution and then we wanted to explore not only the the part of student protest but what happens after the protest. Marie and I have been writing critique partners for for many many years and we wanted to expand that collaboration and write something together we wanted to write a book that explored 
feminism from an intersectional lens. Many of the books that we have read up until that point explore themes of youth activism, feminism, but they were all written from a very wide gaze. They didn't explore this idea that feminism looks very different for brown girls, for black girls, for indigenous girls, and also that social justice movements look very different from for students from marginalized backgrounds and voices of marginalized communities. Sure. The very process of co-authoring a book seems complicated. Do you two create an outline of the plot and decide which events occur and then whose voice advances the narrative? How do you do the distribution of labor? We're so fortunate, Maida and I are, that we have worked together as critique partners for many years and also developed a deep and profound friendship that is at the base of our partnership as co-authors. And that certainly has made the process of co-authoring much easier. Um, you know, we we often joke that our relationship as co-authors is probably second only to our marriages in terms of the intensity of the relationship. And, um, and our husbands know, Louis. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, they know. <laughs> they even have the same name I saw in your acknowledgement for the two Chrises. Yes. yes. <laughs> and, you know, we've, we've vacationed together. We, you know, we really do have a relationship that is moves far beyond the sort of professional relationship, but also really grounds the professional relationship relationship. Yeah, so Maida and I have a, a very, we've developed and honed a, a really detailed process of how we can work together as co-authors relatively seamlessly. And we do kind of alternate back and forth with the chapters, but we also do all the plotting and the editing in kind of, um, usually we, in fact, this afternoon, after we speak with you, we'll be going on an editing retreat. And uh, oftentimes we'll take three or four days and just really dive into working together so that, that when we have to go our separate ways and go back to our lives and you know our other work we're really prepared to to dive in and move forward it's been it's actually been such a wonderful process and i think that the the tenderness and the love that we see in our characters that they have for each other really mirrors the tenderness and the compassion and the love that we've developed together as we've learned to be not only friends and critique partners but also co-authors oh that's beautiful myra you gave us a summary of the plot line, the crisis that Melena faces at school. She has this horrific sunburn and cannot tolerate even the pressure of a bra strap against her sunburned skin. What do we learn about her background? As a Puerto Rican living in the United States, living in Atlanta, Hurricane Maria was a very traumatic experience. I feel like for many of us that lived through that experience, there was a kind of like a before Maria and after Maria. When the hurricane happened, I, I wasn't able to reach my family for a month. Oh my. It was a month of, of crisis. It was a month of like every day trying to figure out how to get hold of my mom, how to get hold of my grandmother, how to get hold of my aunt, my cousins, and and are they okay? And then just being aligned, there was, there was just so much desperation. And I really wanted to write a, a story that it wasn't about that, but that it would capture that feeling. And then when Marie and I 
we're talking we're, and we're developing plot and we when we were developing characters I told her, you know I, I really want Malena to be a Hurricane Maria evacuee that she she had to leave this life that she loved in Puerto Rico a place where she fit in where she had a voice where she was part of a community and start over in Florida with part of her family, but just feeling completely displaced, feeling like she did not fit in and explore what that does to a person, how it, it shifts away at parts of us in ways that we don't realize. There's a poignant moment in the book when Malena says or reflects, I don't know how to be Puerto Rican me around all these people, white, black, Asian, even the Latinx kids who grew up in the States. Will you talk about Malena's frustration with misconceptions about Puerto Rico and stereotypes of Puerto Rican people? Well, I, I may get a little emotional answering this question because that, that was my experience. When I moved from Puerto Rico to the States, I had just graduated college. I was, I was 22. I was, you know, I was full of hope and optimism. And, and I was also very naive. I've never lived in the States. I've never lived away from, you know, the people, the culture, the language that I knew. And that was just so, uh, that was who I was. And it was, it was very shocking to move to the States because the the rules are very different. And I, and I give a couple of examples about this uh, in the book and they're all like real life examples, things that happened to me now that I'm channeling into my characters of not understanding how things work. I mean, I the US is a country of rules and it, everything seems to have a structure. And if you don't understand that system, and you come from a country where things are a little bit more flexible when where relationships are closer and there's more of a personal touch at many times and, and things are not as transactional as sometimes appear. It, it, it can be hard to figure out how to get through that system, how to get things done and how, where, and how to fit, right? Not only that is how to make yourself heard because people will have their own biases that they're reflecting back at you, right? When you speak with an accent, when you get really nervous and you forget words, that that still happens to me. And and I've been, you know, I studied English most of my life when I lived in Puerto Rico and I speak mostly English. When I'm tired or I get nervous, I forget words. Marie many times has to go in and correct my sentence structure or like, you know, small things of grammar. When I started writing, I was told that maybe I should write in Spanish, that I, I, I didn't have what it took to write in English. So, you know, these are all things that, that as a person who did not grow up in the mainland states, United States, you struggle with every single day. So our character, Malena, feels the hurricane wrecked the island and her life. Yes. Marie, would you tell us about Ruby's character and in 
greater detail how she becomes involved with Malena's situation. Sure. You know, in a sense, we wanted Ruby uh, on her first encounter with Malena to have a point of kind of recognition of some degree of shared experience that Ruby will misinterpret and fumble around a bit about. But Ruby also is someone who's recently moved. She's a transplant. She moved from uh, Seattle to North Florida at a time when her beloved grandmother was ill and needed to be cared for. And Ruby, when she kind of sees Milena, their very first encounter in the bathroom, and Milena is so distressed and disoriented, Ruby reaches out to her in ways that are in some ways inappropriate. She crosses some boundaries, but she also, you know, reflects on how she remembers what it was like to show up in this place and just feel at loose ends, uh, not really knowing what the rules were. And Ruby came from a situation of a very privileged, kind of white, privileged, progressive household in which she was expected to to kind of find her purpose and dive into it. Uh, She had an older sister who was very beloved and almost revered in her old high school in Seattle, who was the sort of, you know, activist. Ruby is trying to kind of navigate the expectations that her family has of her in a very different place than the place that she uh, spent most of her childhood and youth. And so we wanted to, you know, whereas Milena is, is working with kind of rediscovering her sense of voice and purpose and developing the courage to speak and sometimes yell when she needs to, Ruby is really working out for herself. What does it mean to be an ally? And when is it important to learn how to listen and learn how to step back, learn how to work with others to to open space for uh, important voices to be heard? So in a sense, their their stories are um, paralleling one another, but also mirroring one another. Where do Ruby's good intentions lead? <laughs> they lead to a lot of mistakes. Um, and, and you know, that was really important for me and Maida. Um, you know, so many of us are well-intentioned and have a passion for justice and for change. And we don't know, you know, particularly those of us who are doing this for the first time as young people, we're, we're all working it out as we go, right? And one of the things that we really wanted to do in this story was to highlight and to really celebrate the capacity to give and receive compassion and forgiveness when we make mistakes um, and to learn and to, to be willing to listen and hear what we've done wrong. So Ruby really steps out and takes the lead in organizing a protest around Milena's experience that really isn't her protest to organize. And as she does so, she and Milena experience a lot of, uh, of conflict, as they should. But the process is, is we believe, a, a really um, beautiful process. Neither one of them is, both of them are making big mistakes along the way and find a way to, to be compassionate and even loving. And, you know, this is really also just a story about building friendship across differences and how powerful and profound and hard that can be. And Lois, those were the hardest scenes to write. Like those those scenes where Ruby and Milena are in the thick of it and they're discussing some very hard topics. You know, they're discussing racism, allyship, you know, f- working across differences. And Marie and I would spend days basically sitting across each other on a on a table 
reciting dialogue to each other, going back and forth over over the scenes again and again and again to make sure that that thread of compassion was really coming through. And that, you know, at a, at a time when people are just calling each other out and there was just so much division in our world that these two girls were working hard to build bridges in their relationship. One of the things that that this book does is that encourages people to think broadly about the ways we collaborate, right? When it's time to step back and listen and when it's time to step forward and, and take action. And then also to think that we're all living in different spaces and we're experiencing the same events in very different ways, depending on the color of our skin, our social class, sexual preference, education, and even our citizenship status. So we need to approach our fights and our engagement in social justice from those very individual lenses and figure out how can we engage and how can we make a difference from, from where we're at in a, in a manner that is safe and that it, it works with our circumstances. Yeah. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with authors Myra Cuevas and Marie Markert. Their new young adult novel is Does My Body Offend You? Social media plays an important role in the story as it does, my goodness, such a huge role in the world and particularly in the lives of young people. I mean, what happens when the photo of Malena's sunburned back ends up on social media. How do the teenagers respond? What happens? So, you know, social media is a very interesting phenomenon. It can be used for good. Like we're seeing that now, um, you know, I was reading an article yesterday about after the Roe v. Wade decision, teen girls are empowering themselves and using social media as a tool for sexual education amongst their peers, right? So there, there's all these initiatives that are growing with social media powering these movements and efforts. So there's something really positive that can that can come out of this tool, but at the same time, it can be turned into something negative. Like, you know, we've all seen examples of the Twitter mob coming after people. And it, it just, you know, it, it becomes savage and young people are not prepared to deal you know all adults are not prepared to deal with with the repercussions of having your identity and your mistakes basically you know put out on um, so in such a public way so Malena and Ruby this that is something they have to struggle with you know learning when to when it's the right time to use social media as a tool for change and when is the right time to kind of pull back and just you know get some distance to take care of your own mental health and this is something that marie and i talk talk about a lot 
as authors, I feel like there's there's an expectation that we have to be on social media, that we have to be very public, that we have to be posting a certain number of times a day. We don't live by that. We live for us, our mental health and our spiritual and emotional health is the number one priority. And if you know, we feel like social media is putting us in a in a place where the, the world is, is is feeling distorted, then we just need to step back and then and then not engage for a while. And I, I think that's a that's a healthy way for for everyone. I would like to go back, uh, Lois, to the question about the very first moment that social media kind of enters into the journey that yes. Melania and Ruby are, are taking off on. Just to kind of clarify what happens in the story, Ruby takes a picture of Melena's back to, to share with a specific person, with a friend of hers who is an activist from her hometown in Seattle. And uh, without permission, the friend decides to, you know, quote unquote, do them a favor and uh, launch a, a sort of a, a movement, <laughs> you know, again, for them. So they're sleeping on the East Coast while, you know, on the West Coast, this friend of Ruby's has, you know, decided to start the revolution with, with a photo of Milena's back. And it, of course, feels like an extraordinary um, invasion of privacy for Milena. And one of the things that I think is, it was really one of the most heart-wrenching parts of the book to write, because Ruby, of course, you know, wakes up thrilled that the movement is underway. Um, and, and in fact, this very well-loved feminist journalist has reached out to them and wants to wants to follow their story. So Ruby comes into that experience, you know, the next morning, just so excited and realizes that um, the feedback that Ruby has been getting on the social media post is so divergent from the feedback that Milena has been getting on this social media post and that the differences in the way that the two of these young women are perceived and especially kind of the explicit forms of racism that Milena has to encounter um, in this moment are overwhelming for Ruby and surprise her. And so I think that's just one example of how you know, these these profound differences that we live in our everyday life on a smaller scale, when they're writ large on social media, particularly without the intention of the folks who are out there on social media, they can just do enormous harm. Yeah. And adolescence is a time of transition. It's characterized by change. Puberty begins earlier for girls, and the physical changes can lead girls to feel they no longer have control of their bodies. How would you describe Milena's self-image and Ruby's as well? You know, they, they say that people write novels for teens because they're very connected to that time in their lives. And I, I, that, is, that is very true for me. I recently wrote an op-ed for CNN, where I work as a producer, about an experience that I had as a teen growing up in Puerto Rico. My science teacher, this, this happened in the ninth grade, my science teacher pulled me aside and asked me point blank if I was having sex with my oh. boyfriend. Oh, and, and she actually expected me to talk to her about this, even though we did not have, we, we did not have that kind of relationship. She was just a teacher. So in hindsight, I came to understand, and it, it just became very clear that girls' bodies are perceived as public property. 
people feel like they have the right to comment, make laws, regulate girls' bodies for a myriad of reasons, right? We see that with dress goes, we see that now with the Roe v. Wade debate. There's so many examples about this. So it really distorts your your relationship with your own body. And there have been so many studies that say that the system of oppression, of systematic oppression of young women leads to so many health issues including anxiety, depression, poor body image, um, and other mental health issues, right? So Malena, on one end, she's being told by her family that she should be proud of, of her body because it's the legacy that she has received from her mother, from her grandmother, like her large breasts are, are part of the family, right? They joke that it's like part of their inheritance. And meanwhile, she's receiving these very negative messages from people around her school and, and, and social media that they don't, they just don't go together. Marie, would you elaborate on how schools use dress codes to shame girls and how dress codes may unfairly target minorities. Yeah, so, you know, when we began researching for this story, we kind of knew experientially from, you know, our own friends and our own children and the schools that we were familiar with, you know, we knew that uh, schools tended to unfairly target young women there. That was our expectation and understanding. You know, I think what we were most concerned about is, again, how a young woman's experience of her body is mediated by and kind of made meaningful by these arbitrary rules. So, you know, what makes collarbones sexual, right? Or, you know, what makes wearing yoga pants somehow a sexualized thing in, until the the dress code comes in and begins to and begins to tell these young women that again, these are particularly young women in middle school who are just moving into kind of living into their bodies as their bodies are changing. Uh, suddenly how they understand what it means to wear shorts for comfort or yoga pants for comfort uh, becomes something very different and it's overwhelming. But you know, what we learned as we, as we dove deeper into the research is how even more so than targeting women, that dress codes across the board, when we look at how dress codes are enforced, they're targeting marginalized communities and people of color, uh, young men of color, gay and transgender people. And so dress codes are really a site of the taking away of the agency of marginalized young people to understand and make sense of how to live in their own bodies. Yeah. And I think part of the bigger issue is that when you are objectifying and devaluing the bodies of these young girls, they become less human. They become less valued and less privileged than others, right? So we can hold up the the athletic white male heterosexual figure and put that on a pedestal, but the body of a heavy black girl, there are issues with that, right? That we need to cover up. It conveys sexism around a very male-centered gaze and racism as well. On the other hand, we did see examples of dress codes that worked because they were protecting 
young women and members of marginalized communities against, for example, racist messaging. Hate speech. And hate speech. You know, the, de- the deeper we dove into it, you sort of the more complicated the picture became for us about um, dress codes, how they function, whether we ought to have them, whether and how they might be created to be more just and affirming. Rather than blaming the victim or shaming. Right. Yeah, and, and on a larger scale, Louis, they, they create a culture of victimization and where things like rape are okay because it was the girl's fault because she dressed a certain way. So she must have asked for it. And at some point, girls start to internalize that messaging and then start questioning their own value and their own rights, their right to have autonomy over their own bodies. And, you know, Maria and I spoke to so many people that were victimized by this process. I I have a friend who, when she was in elementary middle school, she was told that her breasts were too large and that she needed to do something about it. So she basically developed this hunch in her back that still to this day, day, she's now in her 50s and she still struggles with back pain because of that message that she got. She's, she's never been able to be comfortable in her own body. Atlanta-based authors Mara Cuevas and Marie Markhart will be back with more of our conversation about their new young adult novel, Does My Body Offend You?, in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Let's return to my conversation with the Atlanta-based authors Myra Cuevas and Marie Markert. Their young adult novel, Does My Body Offend You?, tells a story laced with tough questions about feminism, race, activism, and how to be a good ally. Here, Markart introduces us to the book's male characters. Before I talk about the male characters, I think one important thing is for, for Maida and I, having the opportunity to explore feminism from a range of angles was really important. For example, there's they're women of a whole range of generations who are living out what what they believe is kind of um, the appropriate and right way to to be a woman in the world, to affirm and sometimes protect other women in the world, 
And uh, we thought it was really important to show that kind of multi-generational view and how, you know, learning to understand one another, learning to listen to one another is something that happens not only across um, the differences between Ruby and Malena, but also across generational differences. We also really wanted to highlight young men and boys who were committed to developing a feminist practice and a feminist voice and to supporting and loving the women that they cared about in ways that were really affirming and nurturing. So we start out with Ruby's best friend, Topher, who, you know, Topher, like Ruby, they come together immediately at school because they recognize that they're both these activists, that these people who are seeking to move into building a more just community in their school. And so they, you know, immediately connect. And Topher is really just a beautiful example of a young man who's just ready to go along with the 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 women that he's the powerful women that he's, you know, friends with and cares about. And he's in it. He's ready, you know, he's ready to go. He's ready to do the work. And it was really fun and beautiful to create a character like that. And, you know, I know so many young men like that, that I really wanted to lift up that example. Carlos is Milena's cousin. And Carlos is very close with Milena, like a brother. Carlos is a baseball star. He's a baseball superstar, actually. And the whole family initially moved from Puerto Rico to Florida because of Carlos. So Carlos was a really fun character to write. And I'll let Maida talk about kind of what Carlos signified in his family. But for me, uh, Ruby came into her first encounter with Carlos with an enormous weight of preconception about what sort of a person Carlos would be. And Carlos surprised her again and again. And like all of our characters, he made some real mistakes, but he was working very hard to try and understand the privilege that he bore and also to understand and to help Ruby understand the privilege that she bore. So um, he was a really fun character to write. And, and I, you know, I joke that um, when I was not much older than Ruby, I met my husband who was a college basketball player and I had never even seen a basketball game when I met my husband. Um, and I had a whole lot of preconceptions about, you know, whether a college athlete would be the sort of person that I would have a lot to talk about. I mean, really, I came into it with a lot of preconceptions. And my husband, Chris, has for now, you know, almost 30 years uh, defied many of those preconceptions. <laughs> and I wanted to write, a, you know, an incredibly talented athlete surrounded by people who adore him who was really working hard to be a good person, a good human, and to understand what it is to live alongside feminists, support them, and be a feminist himself. So what do the teenage boys learn from the girl situation in this story? I guess the teenage boys learn something in one way, they learn something similar to what Ruby learns, which is when it's important to listen carefully and to learn from the point of view of someone whose life experience has been very different from your own. And the value of building relationships where you can have honest conversation, particularly honest conversation around privilege and the privilege that you're sort of immersed in so deeply that you don't even see it. And so Carlos had a lot to learn there, but he also had a lot to share with Ruby about her own experience. And the, when they were able to open up and have honest conversation with each other, based in real care for one another, it was a really amazing thing. It created all sorts of opportunities for them to, to for them to grow. And so I think that's probably the most important thing that these young men were learning is um, how to be allies, good allies. You know, one of the great challenges that we we face when we set out to to write the book and, and build all the characters 
is that we wanted everyone to have good intentions. We didn't want to write your classic villain because we wanted to explore how all these different generations of, of feminists, they're all trying to make the world a better place in their own way. There's just a lot of misunderstandings in between. They're tripping over each other. They're all making a lot of mistakes. Some of those mistakes at times are pretty divisive. They create a lot of uh, problems in their relationships, but but they're, everyone is coming to the table with a good heart. And, and we really wanted to show that because for Marie and I, that has been our experience, right? Even if we disagree with other people's views of feminism, and this this is very common amongst intergenerational feminism. We've had now we're like what in the fourth wave, I think now of feminism. You know, it's easy to disagree and it's easy to get stuck in those disagreements versus trying to find a higher message and, and a higher mission or, or goal that we can all uh, get on board with. Hmm. Ultimately, what does this novel convey about the importance of activism to bring about change? It was very important for us not to end the book in a protest. I think that would have been too easy. In this book, the protest actually happens in the middle. So our characters have to navigate and figure out what happens after the protest. What happens after everyone has taken their signs home? After the chants have died down? What next? How do you affect real lasting change. And that takes a lot of patience. It takes building coalitions, connecting with allies. It takes a community of loving, compassionate people coming together to realize a common goal. So Marie and I really wanted to explore that process and, and have Melina and Ruby go through the entire journey together and trying to figure out how to work with the institutions in a way that was, you know, very adult. I think one of the biggest challenges for activists today is just, it's exhausting when you are working so hard for change and the change is not coming. Um, and, you know, I, I think especially for young activists, and again, I'm surrounded by a lot of these young people who have the expectation that if, if we manage to pull everything together, if we can get this, for example, protest underway, then yes, we'll wake up the next day and something will have changed. And we all know, those of us who have been in a struggle for change for a long time, that that's not how it works. And, you know, Maida and I hope that this book will remind us all that as we're in this long, grueling struggle, sometimes we can be so bolstered and affirmed by finding and creating loving community, coalitions across difference. And also one of the things that I really love about this story is that Milena in particular, and Ruby too, takes the opportunity to learn what is my, my contribution. I can't do it all, right? And if I try to do it all, I'm not going to do it well. But there's something that I can do. There's something that from my own history, my own story, my own gifts and talents, what is it that I'm of called to do in this moment and what can I bring? And it was, it's just, it was so beautiful to write a, a young woman activist going through all the kind of pain and struggle of, of things going wrong and then recognizing I have something important to contribute here and it's specifically mine.
And I only can do it in community. Atlanta-based authors Marie Markert and Myra Cuevas. More information about their young adult novel, Does My Body Offend You?, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll explore the intersection of art and technology with a visit from WABE's TechCast host, Emil Moffat. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. WABE's business and technology reporter, Emil Moffat, has taken on a new challenge as of late. He launched a podcast called TechCast, which aims to help listeners understand how technology relates to everyday lives. Recently, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes and Emil were discussing the intersections of art and technology, and Emil shared that a recent TechCast episode was all about NFTs and the art world. What is an NFT? Well, Emil began his conversation with Kim by explaining just that. It stands for non-fungible token, and we've heard a lot of people describe this as a digital certificate of authenticity, if you will. A lot of the early adoption has actually been in the art world, be it visual arts or music. And when you think about those two things, um, they're kind of hard to commodify in the digital space because they can easily be replicated. Uh, if you remember back to the late 90s or early 2000s with music file sharing, and we see it with digital photographs that are easily copied and pasted and, and reposted sometimes on the web without permission or credit. Um, and so this image or song is a tangible thing and something that you can see and hear. Uh, and artists are minting NFTs, that's the term for creating an NFT, and they're being sold through these online marketplaces, and that's where buyers can use cryptocurrencies to purchase these NFTs. Uh, but beyond just the buying and selling, there's actually some interesting technology behind them. Uh, ben Kaczynski is a professor at Emory's Goisetta School of Business, and he teaches about NFTs and cryptocurrency. With the use of blockchain technologies and immutable records that allow us to label something uh, as unique in a recognizable fashion, I can take that artifact, that image, that piece of music that is uh, eminently exchangeable and make it unique and identifiable and therefore possibly more valuable. And that blockchain technology that allows that trail of ownership is something that cannot be duplicated and that's relatively new technology. And so that's what you're really getting when you buy an NFT is this digital certificate that this is a proof of ownership. Although we should note, Kim, that you're not actually owning the right to duplicate or license uh, that image or song uh, any further. 
Yeah, so it's just that one actual instance of it, right? Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so why do you think NFTs have become so big in the art world, and who exactly is using them? Uh, For that, we called up an Atlanta artist, Greg Mike, to get his take. My style, I would say, is uh, kind of pop art, um, street art, contemporary art, a lot of bright bright colors, uh, bold line work, um, draw a lot of inspiration from old school retro cartoons. So Greg Mike, a year ago at this time, was launching his first NFT collection, and he was kind of an early adopter. Yeah, it was it was crazy because like as soon as that drop happened, it was like the the DMs and Instagram, Twitter, everything else just exploded with everyone like, "Hey, can I pick your brain?" And uh, yeah, <laughs> it was a little overwhelming at the time, but I'm glad I could like you know push that knowledge forward and help you know onboard folks. I think it's important with with what we're doing is to make sure that we can help other people understand it because it is daunting you know and so he thinks of nfts as a way to commodify digital artwork and he says that's important for artists of his generation uh, ones who grew up creating art on a computer instead of with a pen and paper or paint on canvas all my work is created digitally first so once that all clicked and i started realizing that like the digital files that i'm actually creating are actually the originals and my paintings that I'm painting, whether that's a mural or, or a painting in the studios, almost a replica. I mean, it's still an original in its own sense, but there is some value in the digital piece of it. I love that Greg Mike mentioned murals, since this is one area where we're hearing that NFTs could really come in handy for artists because murals, they may last a few weeks or months or years, but eventually they're going to be painted over. Yeah, it could be very useful to have some sort of permanent element to mural artwork, because when you think about it, what is a mural? It's the actual paint on the wall. And after that's gone, what do you have left? And the possibilities with NFTs just seem so abundant. Uh, Another could be what's called the the metaverse, uh, this space that blends real life and augmented reality. And in fact, Greg Mike says this is how he approaches some of his artwork these days. You know, the whole time I'm creating now, I'm thinking about like, how can this be more than just like a still image on a wall, right? Like, or how can this painting come to life? You know, can this painting that I'm hanging in the gallery have an AR component so that, you know, you pull it up on your phone and the characters move and their eyes look around. And it's that enhanced experience uh, that artists see as yet another opportunity to earn extra money through their artwork. Uh, Also using the blockchain technology, there's the ability to create what's called a smart contract. That means that if your NFT is sold down the road by uh, a third party, you could actually automatically get a percentage of that sale. Uh, But many artists have run into issues with people taking their artwork and minting unauthorized NFTs. And the marketplaces that uh, use for NFTs can be unregulated. So some artists have had to be really diligent to make sure that their images or music, their creations aren't being stolen. And that can mean hours and yeah, that can mean hours and hours of monitoring these marketplaces, uh, sending cease and desist letters, even hiring lawyers to protect their copyrights. And so there's also this issue of equity. You know, can artists from all backgrounds benefit from NFTs? Or will it only be the artists who have the resources to spend this time and money? Really good point. Yeah, and so Ashley France uh, is a consultant in Atlanta. We called her up recently. She advises companies and artists getting into the NFT space. 
And she says black and brown artists can actually benefit by marketing directly to customers. It allows artists to be able to raise capital and get funding for things without having to get a loan, without always having to use all of their personal income or without having to really have a label. Um, some of the big um, black artists in the NFT space, Black Dave and Latasha and Iman, um, they're really, really good examples of small independent artists that have been able to sell out NFT projects and make a lot of money that they can utilize for their projects through NFTs. Really interesting. All right. So there's a lot of concerns about the environmental impact of NFTs and blockchain. The musician Brian Eno wrote an opinion piece recently that completely picked apart NFTs, saying it isn't about art, it's just another way of making money that requires more energy, more electricity, and more fossil fuels to be burned. Yeah, I put that question to Professor Kaczynski at Emory, and he said that the images or songs associated with NFTs, those aren't really the problem. That's no different from the data that's uploaded every day online. Uh, you know, servers can handle those. But he says what is significant is the actual blockchain technology. It's very energy intensive. It's kind of always solving these math problems to maintain that chain part of the blockchain. Um, and so it's something that people might not actually notice if they're shopping in an NFT marketplace. This will be more underneath rather than at the front end of it. So it, it is an issue that is uh, definitely associated with today's practices, but we need to revisit those practices. Now, one thing that we should note is that not all NFT marketplaces and blockchain technology have the same environmental impact. Some use less energy, some use more. So artists and buyers who are concerned about their footprint uh, do have some options on what they choose to use if they want to get involved in this space. There are actually some online carbon calculators that will let you see how much energy is used, and we'll link to that on the City Lights page at our website, wabe.org. All right, Emil, so what can you tell us about the future of NFTs? Well, Professor Kaczynski says he thinks uh, about NFTs kind of like uh, what ride-sharing has done uh, to our lives. We kind of take that for granted now. If you need a Lyft or an Uber, you take out your phone, you push one button, and uh, suddenly a driver shows up. He knows where you are, and, and the driver can get there uh, almost instantaneously because of technology. We could not do an Uber 20 years ago, but now we can because the complexity that is needed for an Uber is ready for us. And that's what's happened. That's what's forming now. The infrastructure that will serve us to do new kinds of, of things and new kinds of uh, actions and commerce and society. And some of those kind of possible future uses for this kind of blockchain technology could be maybe digital tickets to an event. Um, Ashley France says one of the more creative uses she's seen for NFTs has been as kind of a membership card. So whether that be behind the scenes content, meetups, um, VIP, in-person events, etc. And then once you have utilized this membership or maybe you move, you're able to sell it and somebody else will have access to it. This is just all such great information, but I got to tell you, it still seems like every day we're hearing stories about people paying outrageous amounts of money for NFTs. It's hard to believe that they're really this valuable. Yeah, and, and Professor Kaczynski says you really have to think of this uh, almost like investing in a startup. It's something that could down the road pay off handsomely one day, uh, but it also could not. 
we've got to be careful uh, that what we're investing in aligns with our timeline of relevance. That what is it's meaningful to you at this time, and will it be meaningful in the future? And and so people have to take a, a long horizon, even in dealing with a short horizon transaction. And so he says it really depends on how the technology evolves. NFTs could prove to be a big deal in the art and music world, but they could also kind of fade away. Uh, but he does think that the technology behind them will likely be here to stay. Emil Moffat, host of WABE's TechCast, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. More information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., renowned authors Margaret Rankle and Janice Ray join us, along with a favorite Atlanta actor and educator, Brenda Bynum. The three distinguished women will tell us about Meridian Herald's Confluence 2022. The program combines music, history, literature, science, and spirituality and runs September 10th through the 17th at various Atlanta locations. Plus, WABE Sounds Like ATL Showcase at City Winery is next week. And we'll hear one of this month's performers, Brendan Nicole Moore. City Light senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.